0: You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast.
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the All Creatures Podcast. I'm Angie, and today I'll be interviewing Dr. Rachel Santemeyer from the Lincoln Park Zoo, who is the director of the Davey Center for Epidemiology and Endocrinology. And she's here with us today to talk about black-footed ferrets. She's a specialist in their conservation and reproductive biology. And it's a real honor to have her here because black-footed ferrets, as we've discussed in one of the previous podcasts, if you haven't listened to it, please check it out. Black-footed ferrets are one of the most endangered mammals in North America, And Rachel works hand in hand with them on a very frequent basis. So
0: welcome, Dr. Rachel. How are you? I'm doing well. Thank you for having me and having me talk about one of my favorite animals in the world. Oh, we're really glad that you're
1: here. And for my listeners out there, this to me is like a very, very special interview because Dr. Santmeyer, or Rachel as I, I call her, of course, is one of my dear friends and my number one mentor when it comes to wildlife conservation and physiology. So I'm going to embarrass her a little bit because I know she doesn't like to be uh, doted on. (laughs) But I'm going to dote on her today because if it wasn't for her and her taking me under her wing and hopefully seeing that spark in my eye about biology and physiology when I was a young keeper at Lincoln Park Zoo, if it wasn't for her, I probably wouldn't be sitting here today, and I uh, most likely would not be at the University of Florida working towards my graduate degree. She was just a real inspiration, and I want to applaud her and just tell her how much I love her. (laughs) Good thing is a podcast, you can't see me all teary. (laughs) I know, I know, but you were so great. I was young, and you let me uh, go into your lab and play with your fancy pipettes and do some assays and things I didn't even know what they were at the time. And it was just a really cool experience because I was like, I want to be just like her. (laughs) So hopefully someday I will make you proud and uh, do some really cool stuff like you. I don't know if I'll specialize in uh, black-footed ferrets, but um, maybe rhinos or zebras or something else. So something with hoofs and horns, of course. (laughs) But thank you for agreeing to be here with me today. And I'm just... Excited for the listeners to learn about your expertise with black-footed ferrets. Great. I'm excited. Why don't you give the listeners a little bit about yourself and your background?
0: Sure. Of course, I was one of those people that loved animals, and I thought, you know, if this is what you're passionate about, then you became a veterinarian. And, you know, as in high school and all through college. I worked at veterinary offices. I was at Clemson University in South Carolina studying pre-veterinary science. And I applied to vet school, had an interview at Tuskegee in Alabama, and literally there was one person in front of me that changed my whole life. Oh. I didn't get in because of this person, you know, had a better application. And so... This scientist came down from the National Zoo and talked at Clemson about how he was an animal scientist. And he was using all the methods that we've learned, like uh, artificial insemination and uh, semen evaluation and applying it to endangered species like the clouded leopard and the cheetah. And this was Dr. Dave Wilt at the Smithsonian's National Zoo. And I thought, wow, Wow. that is the coolest thing ever. That's what I (laughs) want to do.
1: Oh my goodness, we need to that person that was one ahead of you. We need to shake really? their hand and be so happy that they were the one ahead of you because it worked out for <laughs> so many animals and myself. It, it definitely benefited us. And 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 then you were able to follow your inspiration more into the wildlife reproductive physiology yes, pursuit. Yes.
0: Uh-huh. And so I I sort of stuck with that and I actually stayed at Clemson and Got my master's in animal physiology, specializing in reproduction, but worked at the zoo, the Riverbank Zoo in Columbia, South Carolina, and studied black cowler monkey reproduction. And, you know, my parents are so proud because my, I think my dad said that my thesis was X-rated <laughs> because I mentioned, you know, reproductive technologies like semen collection and uh, using feces for testosterone analysis in the, in the black caller <laughs> monkey. So he um, thanked me for the thesis, but said he couldn't read it, so... Oh my gosh, that's
1: so funny. Yes, if you're if you're specializing in reproductive physiology, I I teach a lot of uh courses and TA them and you have to get very comfortable using words that may, make you and your students a little yes. uncomfortable and sometimes you just got to let them that's get right. the giggles out. <laughs> And so how did you then get involved with the zoo? So
0: because I did my master's at the zoo, um, Riverbank Zoo, I um, then actually um, got asked to become a technician in the endocrinology lab at the Smithsonian's National Zoo. And there I learned so much because we worked with so many different species under Dr. Janine Brown. Um, and I just, I mean, I learned about all the issues that you had to deal with when you're trying to get samples, especially if you're in, in, you know, working in the field in Africa, for example. And, um, and then I decided mm-hmm. that I did that for a couple of years and I decided that I wanted to do my own projects. And so I stayed there and worked, um, did my mm-hmm. my research with the Smithsonian but went to George Mason University f- for their environmental science and public policy program.
1: Cool. Wow. Yeah, you definitely were working with some of the top programs in the country, which I would imagine is very inspiring.
0: Yeah, it was just it's it's just really awesome to be able to work directly with the endangered species. And, you know, sometimes we have to use a model species like for the black-footed ferrets where you use the domestic ferret as a model. Um, mm-hmm. But just, you know, with my PhD, I got to work directly on the black-footed ferret and even as a side project, um, got to go out to the wild and trap up wild black-footed ferrets. And one of the most rewarding so things cool. for me actually was when we were uh, trapping up ferrets, wild ferrets in Mexico We trapped up a captive-born male that had been out in the field for about two years, surviving and thriving, Mm -hmm. and he was actually born at the National Zoo and preconditioned, so they go through this boot camp before they're certified from the Fish and Wildlife Service to be released in the wild, like, yes, you can be successful. They get the little stamp of approval. So this male was born at the zoo. He was prepared for the wild at the zoo, and then he was living successfully in the wild. And that sort of immediately was a career oh, check off wow. for me. Like, all right, well, that one's done. What can I do next? So, All right, like full circle. That's yes.
1: just incredible. And so now what was
0: your uh, dissertation work studying black-footed
1: ferrets on?
0: It was on really sort of a technique dissertation looking at um, mm-hmm. better ways to crowd reserve semen so that we could use that for a strategy to maintain the population for long term. You know, if something happened and we lost all our live ferrets, we may be able to use these gametes to rescue them.
1: Yes, I was reading a story about one of the males. I don't know if he was part of the original population, but his name was Scarface and that he had, they had preserved some of his semen and he was able to sire offspring 20 years later after he had passed away.
0: Yes. Isn't it amazing? He was one of the last ferrets removed from the wild in that effort in the beginning to res- rescue the species from extinction. So he was one of those tricky males that they he, they knew was out there and they could <laughs> see his footprints and his snow they, when they did snow tracking and, and such. But he was crafty, you know, and he actually ah, was one of crafty. the most successful males when he even when he was alive. Um, he saw a lot of offspring wow. in the beginning and really helped the program get started. That is
1: so cool. Yeah, I have goosebumps when I think about that story. And it's just pretty amazing, the whole black-footed ferret story. And for those of the listeners that haven't um, tuned into our previous podcast, could you give us a brief synopsis on their story from being extinct to then, obviously, their rebound efforts?
0: Yeah, so... In the 70s, you know, the, they really thought this species was extinct and they found one population in, in Millette County, South Dakota, and they really mm-hmm. didn't know anything about the biology of, of, of ferrets in general. And so they really, they were out in the field monitoring them, just trying to figure out what was going on. And they even brought some a handful of those individuals um, to start up a captive breeding program, which ended up not being successful because we just really didn't know about ferret biology. And then when Mm -hmm. that population um, fizzled out, they actually thought the whole species was extinct. And then in about 1985, this dog named Shep in Matitsi, Wyoming, was fighting with something in the middle of the night. And the owners went out the next day and they found this dead creature on their porch and they were like... they. Didn't know what it was. And so um, Mrs. Hogg, mm-hmm. the Hog family that found this creature, took it to a taxidermist to have it stuffed. And the, the taxidermist actually identified it as being in a black-footed ferret. And that really is how they found the last wow. population of the species. And there's a lot of political debate about so what to do now since, you know, just monitoring in the wild had failed. Mm-hmm. A captive breeding program was not successful and who was to oversee the program if they were to start up another captive breeding program, the Fish and Wildlife Service or, you know, Wyoming Game and Fish. And so after all this two-year debate, um, the ferret po- population started to um, die off. They saw prairie dogs dying from salvatic play, which is introduced disease, mm-hmm. one of our nemesis when it comes to recovering the ferrets. And so the last-ditch mm-hmm. effort was to pull all the remaining ferrets from the wild, and Originally, it was 24, but six died almost immediately, and a lot of them, they think were dying from either plague or canine distemper virus, and then um, we left us with 18 mm-hmm. to start up a whole captive breeding program, and so all the ferrets we have today, and 30 wow. years later, you know, come from these 18, and only actually seven of those 18 produced offspring that survived. So, all the ferrets we have come from seven founders. And how many ferrets are there now currently? Well, in those 30 years, we produce over 9,000 black-footed ferrets from oh those goodness. seven founders. Wow. Um, so ferrets are, are pretty short-lived, particularly in the wild. They may live two to four years. You know, in a zoo setting, they live a, a little bit longer. You know, they can live up to be seven years old. Um, so today probably on the planet we have less than 700 black-footed ferrets and that includes in the breeding program in the wild and then also sort of the zoos that exhibit them. Okay so there are some on display at zoos? Yeah just to get people connected with one of the rarest mammals that we have here in in North America. And speaking of zoos you work at Lincoln Park
1: Zoo which is where you and I met And I fell head over heels for Dr. Santemeyer as an endocrinologist and reproductive biologist. So the Lincoln Park Zoo supports your efforts to help work with the black-footed ferrets, both in the wild and in a captive setting. Can you explain some of the specifics of what you do for the zoo and for black-footed ferrets?
0: Sure, yeah. at the zoo, they call me Dr. Poop, um, because most <laughs> of the research I do involves poop and, and feces. Yeah. Um, and we take a non-invasive approach to understanding the physiology of the animals we have at our zoo. And that's to make sure that their welfare is good. And also that, you know, sometimes it's, it's basic questions like, is the animal pregnant? And we can actually extract hormones from feces to, to look at these measures. And we focus, my program focuses mostly on reproduction and stress. And um, we, you know, collect a lot of feces from our animals here at the zoo. You know, the animal care staff is going to already pick up the samples so they can literally just put it in the Ziploc bag, as you know, Um, and for, throw it in the freezer. I, I, interestingly,
1: yeah, interestingly enough, I still have, uh, Ziploc bags that were not used, but they were, they were labeled in either days that we, perhaps the animal had stepped in the defecation or we weren't able to, able to use it. And so they're kind of fun. They're like some of my, my mementos, uh, kind of fond memories of yes, collecting,
0: uh, feces for you when we first met. (laughs) So we collect these samples, and we can really see what goes on inside the animal. And as I tell most of the animal behavioralists, if anybody's had a cat or a dog, you know they can hide certain things from you, and they're very good at hiding something that may make them excluded from a group.
1: Mm-hmm. And so my
0: physiological measures actually show how they're responding to their environment, whether they think it was a stressful day the day before, or they're they're ready to be to to breed, we can really look at those and um, compare them to the behavior that we're seeing. So you can learn a lot about how an animal is feeling
1: uh, and some of their physiological parameters by looking at their poop.
0: Yeah. Which and is now so, so cool. Bran- yeah. We- <laughs> now we've even branched to other samples like toenails. We use horse hooves, for example, hair. Um, you know, even from our African penguins, we're collecting toenails to look at stress levels um when they trim the ponies hooves we we're getting those samples we can do, we can do feathers so um those samples give a a long longer term perspective of what's going on with the stress levels so
1: very very cool and so the field of endocrinology and looking at endocrine hormones and your and your area particularly stress or reproductive hormones it's growing now it's not just about blood and feces and urine. So like you're saying, there's hair involved or uh, toenails. And then, and recently didn't you do some work with frogs? frogs?
0: Yeah. um, Several amphibian species. Yeah. We call it, affectionately, we call it our frog swabs. Um, And because Mm -hmm. one of my arch nemesis is the elusive pooper And if you know, if you've had a cat, you know that they bury their feces. So if you wanted to study wild cats, it it makes it very difficult. And amphibians are sort of the same where, you know, I was naive and I thought, you know, just when you pick up a toad, it urinates on you to deter predation, right? I thought, oh yeah, all amphibians did this. So Mm -hmm. when we were going to study the prevalence of the chytrid fungus in Chicago, I thought, oh sure, when you pick up the frog or the toad Mm -hmm. or the salamander... You're going to, you know, it's going to urinate on you and we can use that to measure their stress levels to see how they're responding to their environment and how that may affect their susceptibility to the chytrid fungus. Well, I guess if you live in the water, you know, you're not going to use urine to deter being eaten by a predator. So, um, they, they were, even the toads were very stubborn and would not pee for us. Well, I said, well, you know, the skin is actually an endocrine gland. So let's swab the skin. And we have a set mm-hmm. method to do that. And then we'll just see if we can find any stress hormones. And lo and behold, we can. All we have to do, all we have to do is swab the frog. So cool. The salamander. Wow. We did fully aquatic like axolotl species. We did uh, semi-aquatic and we did terrestrial and arboreal species. Wow. And it works. I'm, even the dry toad gives <laughs> a great stress response um, just by swabbing the skin. And you don't get peed on. It's like a win-win.
1: <laughs> because honestly, <laughs> poop. Is no problem. Poop is contained, but yeah, urine. I've I've had to work on a lot of research projects collecting urine from horses, and it is a mess, and it sticks in your on your clothes, and your shoes are just pretty much worthless after one of those projects. So, yeah. uh, But skin swabbing is is very cool. So that's awesome. Yeah, we're pretty excited by that. That just came out in Conservation Physiology. So. And now, Rachel, since you're the expert in black-footed ferrets, can you tell me some fun facts that listeners might not know since you've worked hand-in-hand with them for so many years?
0: Well, yeah, from my personal experience, they're pretty smelly. Um, They're mustelids, <laughs> right? So they have these anal glands and they use it probably for attracting each other, but also, you know, deterring predators. Um, And... They they may be small. Like the females are about 600 grams, and the the males are about you know probably about double that size. Mm-hmm. You know you know around one kilogram. And they are strong. Oh. I tell you, they are. So when we capture them, they, they, come, in, they come into our mobile hospital in a tube, like the black landscaping mm-hmm. tube that you use. And sometimes if um, they're stubborn, we have to put on a welding glove and sort of do the plunger to get them into the, mm-hmm. um, the <laughs> anesthesia chamber, the induction chamber. And, you know, these little females that are out in the wild. They are tough. They are so strong I you know you know me I lift weights I tell you what I was I was so strong folks <laughs> yeah, they are wow oh they my are very gosh. strong and so we would be in trouble if these were 200 pound you know animals but they're not but they're, they're they eat prey the the yeah. prairie dog right they evolved to eat this this um, ground rodent species you found out west and that's pretty much all they will eat um but you know except for some moms as you experience moms will save the good meat like the prairie dog for their 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 kits their offspring um and she will eat sort of rodents to snack along Aww, the way right moms. by trying to provide for her her kits i i know i i do that <laughs> yeah I def- i definitely find myself eating
1: a lot of side leftover cold yeah. chicken nuggets when my kids are eating like the wonderful, fresh, you know, yeah, whatever like, it is. Oh, you so, you want my steak? Yeah, oh, so-
0: please take it. You know, like whatever. Yeah. You, you just make sure you're eating good <laughs> yeah. food. I will eat just whatever. Make sure
1: you're, mm, uh, so yeah. moms get a lot of leftovers. That's so cool that they do
0: that too. Wow. I didn't. I- they do that too. And they found that through stable isotopes, you know, through the hair, you know, what, what they're actually eating and not just eating prairie dogs, but, um, so, so they have to be strong because their prey species is twice the size of them, just about.
1: I know. I've seen some videos when I was researching before our, our previous Black-footed ferret episode. And, I, I mean, predator, prairie dogs are huge. Yeah. <laughs> the, the fact that they, you know, this is what they hunt and that they can take them down is very impressive.
0: Yeah, and they're just very stealthy and you know, they sneak down into the burrows at night and really get them when they're not paying attention um and and, and take them down and <laughs> it's just amazing and that they can do that and you know, for me one of my struggles working with them is they're nocturnal, you know, active at night mm-hmm. and I'm a I'm a morning person, so when we had to go out to the field and we're looking for black-footed ferrets, it's up all night. You know, we're up all night, sometimes even into the next day. Oh. Um, but <laughs> lots of coffee. <laughs> yeah, lots of a lot. Yeah, actually, I pull out the Mountain Dew at the time. <laughs> oh,
1: wow. The heavy yep. hitter. That's a flashback to my uh, freshman college years when I would, you know, save studying for like the night before and Mountain right. Dew That's about the only dew. time I ever Hell drank yeah. it. That's right. Oh, That's so funny. Wow. Yeah. I guess I, I, I always talk about in the podcast how difficult it can be to study nocturnal species. And or um, count the populations because they're nocturnal and uh, just putting that visual of, of you being a morning person and then having to be up all night uh, to track these guys is it, it really sinks, <laughs> sinks home all the hard work and dedication that you and I'm sure the staff you work with what you get what you do in the lengths you're you're willing to drink mountain dew for Blackfooted ferret conservation and that's
0: super impressive <laughs> well i don't know if impressive. it's the same with other we're covering other endangered species i don't really get to work with a lot of the managers for other species but i tell you the, the people that work with the Blackfooted ferret we are they're so passionate and dedicated to the species every one of them is just passionate and will bend over backwards to get the job done and we're a pretty amazing group you know we are the bffs you know the for Blackfooted ferret so truly, I mean, <laughs> hardcore and people just, they sacrifice a lot to, to save the species. That's such an amazing thing to
1: hear. And, and especially from you, an expert out in the field, because without you guys and without these heroic efforts, um, and of course, the dog Shep that you had mentioned earlier, that they found a member of the Blackfooted Ferrets when we had thought that they were extinct is it is just remarkable because without the teamwork, different states, different zoos working together, the government, uh, the recovery efforts wouldn't have happened. And it just—it's a great example of what can happen when people come together. Regulations are put in place, and, and 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 for me, it's a feel-good story as far as the recovery efforts that have been made. And I—I I know they're still not completely out of the woods, and we'll touch on that in a little bit but really good things have been happening for these guys in the past 20 years thanks to people like yourself and as you said <laughs> many others and so i can just picture all of you guys out at nighttime with your mountain dew and your lights and just and working hard to make sure these guys are safe and healthy and it's it's really inspiring so i um keep keep fighting the good fight i would say
0: yeah i work with a lot of a lot of the field guys they're just so passionate and, you know, they're the really ones that are, are, are finding the ferrets and I'm still my geeky lab person. I just, as my field work, I really just take my <laughs> lab to the field, you know. And so um, I work mm-hmm. with uh, Travis Laverie and he he is the field expert for me and he uh, drags me all around and he's the one out there, you know, listening to rock and roll out in the prairie, you know, finding ferrets for me um so they're you know it's it's pretty amazing and these landowners there's a lot of private landowners incentives ranchers that are helping to save endangered species like black-footed ferrets and they you know allow us to come out on their property and Mm -hmm. and find ferrets and um you know they maintain the prairie dog They, they allow the prairie dog population to be out there um and so it it's really this effort that you know spans beyond science and and zoos it really takes these you know the community too to save a species like the ferret and that's so cool and the people are
1: doing it and our like you said the landowners and the government and just recognizing that this is a truly unique mammal uh, and native to North America only and highly endangered and a critical component of the prairie system too. So, Ferret
0: recovery program is really a great model for how we can plan other endangered species recovery because it not only works with the government, you know, the federal and the state level, it works with scientists, it works with landowners, and it takes all of us to to save this unique species. Right. And and those efforts are able to go forward
1: and putting them all together, we are seeing positive outcomes, which is just – very exciting and that's why I'm, I'm so happy for the listeners that they get to, to hear your, your point of view today. And I must ask, because I was surprised to find out when I was researching uh, black-footed ferrets, I must ask your opinion about domestic ferrets as a pet. Uh, it's There's numbers out there that they are the third most popular pet in North America and there's five to seven million of them. As pets in North America. And so I was just wondering if you could maybe explain a little bit to the listeners about the difference between black-footed ferrets and then domestic ferrets.
0: Actually, the the domestic ferret Popularity is one of the things that helped rescue the black-footed ferret. Because of people using them, particularly in Europe, I think it started with hunt, using them for hunting, they had to learn how to cre- create these ferrets. So they learned a lot about Uh-oh. what they ate, the reproductive biology, and we used all of that for the black-footed ferret. So it's pretty amazing. And we do continue mm-hmm. to use them as a model, learning about their physiology nutrition. Um, but they're kind of a unique animal to have as a pet. The domestic ferret. Um, they're kind of cat-like, but in a dog-like manner. Um, they're very sneaky. Uh, they're kind of like nocturnal, like, almost like the the uh, the cats are. Cats they are, but mm-hmm. they're kind of dog-like, and and the the way they interact with you. Um, oh. And so I've never had one, <laughs> um, but I. A lot of my friends do have them, and they just seem like they're really mm. a cool pet to have. Interesting. And are they stinky? <laughs> well, <laughs> I think they're de-scented, but they still kind of have their ah. unique odor. The little, um, unique it's probably some odor. of their oil glands, too. Um, mm-hmm. But, yeah, they still kind of have a bit of a smell, um, but they're totally different than black-footed ferrets. And, and zoos and other breeding programs, like at the the Fish and Wildlife Service, they really try to keep these animals wild and so we make sure that we breed and and um all individuals have a chance to breed they make sure they pass their genes on to the next generation none of them are held like you would hold a a, a domestic ferret they're they're uh, kept wild because even sometimes adults that are healthy um will be released into the wild um so we make mm-hmm. sure that we don't interact with them That would somehow make them more domesticated, or we make sure that we maintain the the gene pool that we started with. So no snuggling, black-footed ferrets. (laughs) No, you wouldn't want to for sure. (laughs) I I
1: was going to say the way you describe them being so strong, it probably doesn't sound like uh, a very snuggly uh, animal at at any rate. So, and now throughout your tenure, do you have a favorite black-footed ferret that you worked with? Or that you I, know from the wild, like maybe a sneaky masked bandit, the, the elusive one, or something.
0: Um, not really. I um, I don't get to interact with them that way. I uh, they have named one after my son, uh, which Aww. thankfully he was a very good uh, breeder, so there's lots of offspring coming from him. <laughs> it wasn't a dud. good Good. Okay. Okay. Excellent. So, uh. um, but no, they're they're um. They definitely have their own personalities, I think, for sure. And oh. we can definitely tell in the wild when we're trapping them up if they're captive versus wild. They behave slightly differently okay. towards people. Mm-hmm. So,
1: Well, in the preconditioning program, is can you tell the listeners a little bit about
0: that, a little bit more in detail? Sure. So in 1991, the captive program had produced enough ferrets and they were pretty good. They had the groove on. They thought, okay, now it's time to get them back out in the wild. And they released mm-hmm. about 50 individuals back into Wyoming, not the same site, back into Wyoming, and uh, they didn't fare well. Basically, what happened is okay. coyotes, which see them as a competitor, killed a lot of them. And so we had to take a step back. Mm-hmm. If they're kind of not understanding that they live in, live in burrows and they need to find food... We need to train them, and because every individual mm-hmm. is so valuable to the program, and so what they do, mm-hmm. they go like as I mentioned earlier, they go through a boot camp, and uh, basically a mom with her sixty-day, two-month-old kits will go out to these outdoor pens mm-hmm. that have uh, a burrow system dug by the prairie dogs. So ferrets not only kill and eat prairie dogs, then they steal their homes. Right when they're sleeping. <laughs> Yes, right. So they, they get them when they're sleepy. Sneaky. Yes,
1: and then they and then they steal their homes. Then they I li- love they these guys. Just, It's uh. like you know
0: sleeping with the enemy, really. So oh my um, goodness. So they they learned to live in the burrow system. In fact, mm-hmm. you know they thought maybe they just weren't aware of predators or or competitors, and so in the beginning, um, Brian Miller did some research at the Smithsonian where they took a stuffed badger, and they put him on a remote control car. And they drove him around. His name, of course, was Robo Badger and chased ferrets around to make sure that they would run <laughs> into the burrows. But it, it really was about mm-hmm. them living outside and in the burrow system that made them successful. And so they um, the mom okay. does a lot of training with her kit, and she trains um, them to kill um, prey. And so they start sort of with a smaller like mm-hmm. a mouse. Um, And then they build up to a a prairie dog. They have to be able to kill a prairie dog um, in order to be released into the wild. Like I said, every individual is so valuable. You know, and kids really hate that part of the story. But honestly, to save ferrets, we have to save the prairie dog. And there's so much human wildlife conflict where it comes with them with prairie dogs because they they eat grasses and other plants, compete Mm -hmm. for the lands with uh, cattle and agriculture and urban development. So a lot of them are poisoned. And so ferrets need prairie dogs. That's the end of the story right there. And so in order to save the prairie dog, which is the keystone species of the prairie ecosystem, Mm -hmm. we have to use the ferret.
1: Yeah, and you bring up a really good point with um, reintroducing carnivores, which a black-footed ferret is a carnivore can be tricky because like you said a lot of times the moms have to teach the, the the babies the offspring how to hunt and if they're not able to do that in a um, when they're housed under human care it can be really tough when they're released so there's not there's starting to be more success stories and you can correct me if i'm wrong there's starting to be more success stories of carnivores being re-released in, into the wild but historically it's been problematic because Because of that issue of them not knowing how to hunt, where a lot of your more hoofstock species, which I'm familiar with, they eat grass. And unless they're obligate type of herbivores or browsers that need something specific that's not around, they might need a little bit of training, but obviously not as much because it's not as big a skill set to just munch on grass. And uh, and, and, they, and they can often do really well when they're released into the wild, um, depending on the, the location and if it's supported. But carnivores have been tricky. And so the fact that through all these collaborative efforts in research and science and animal caretakers, the fact that everybody did figure out the best way to precondition and then release a ferret that has been born under human care back into the wild is just a really incredible story and I applaud everything that you guys are doing. It's, It's just really, it's really good.
0: They are. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, it's not, it's just not about hunting, but it's, as you know, when you start a new exercise routine, it's about developing those muscles, you know, and that's also why living in the burrow system is so good because they develop those muscles to, you know, be able to run across the prairie, to dig and to be in the burrows and then also to be able to kill their prey. And the only thing about, why black ferrets versus domestic ferret is not a good animal mm-hmm. as a pet is that to kill mm-hmm. their prey, they usually do a neck bite and suffocate the, the prairie dog. Well, if you get bit by a ferret, they don't let go so that's because that's how they hunt right so they bite and they don't let go so that prairie dog you know doesn't have a chance basically because it's the fer- ferrets are very tenacious they you know are ferocious they you know mm-hmm. that's why i say that they, they're luckily where they're only one kilogram um and oh, you know no threat to us of course <laughs> but you know prairie dogs you know that's right. what they evolved to kill so mm-hmm,
1: mm-hmm. and so what is the current status of the black footed ferrets in the wild
0: there's about three 100 to 400 in the wild, and we have about 28 reintroduction sites. Some of them are more active than others or have more or less ferrets, um, and that ranges from Canada down into Mexico. Oh, wow. Okay. Big range. Now, wherever you find prairie dogs is where you find, we used to find black footed ferrets. Gotcha. And now, do you think their
1: population would be sustainable in the wild without the captive breeding efforts?
0: Not at this point. There's a, a couple major issues that we have to overcome. And some of that is just good habitat, you know, having the prairie dogs, mm-hmm. um, you know, and then, of course, with you know the changes in the weather and climate change, you know, it, it's going to influence the grasses and where the prairie dogs are. So that's one of our challenges. Uh, we do have uh, a new incentive with private landowners, ranchers can get a certain dollar amount per acre to maintain prairie dogs and allow us to put black-footed ferrets there. And I think that's going to be successful at providing corridors between these larger sites that we might have that's on Mm -hmm. more public land, like U.S. Forest um, land, service land, or National Park Service land, um, where we have a lot of opportunities to maintain those prairie dogs. That's
1: so cool. I mean, the incentive incentive programs are can be really helpful.
0: Yeah, and it's really getting the community out there to see that prairie dogs can be out there. That's where they belong naturally with the ecosystem. That's how they, the ecosystem evolved with them there. Um, they maintain that prairie, mm-hmm. so they're very important. Right. They're
1: the Not only the prairie dogs, but the black-footed ferrets, they're all indicators of a very healthy prairie system, which... I'm sure the ranchers want for their animals yeah, but to graze Yeah, prairie dogs
0: actually keep the grasses uh, at a shorter level. That makes it more nutritious, and that's why cattle want to feed on prairie dog towns. But the issue is overgrazing um, and then drought, you know, when it's a drought, all those kind of issues play a factor and, and being able to maintain both. Mm-hmm. And so besides habitats, are there any other pressures that black-footed ferrets are facing? Yeah, there was a, a disease that was introduced from Asia called Sabbatical Plague, okay. and it, it's the same sort of um, bacteria that caused a black death in Europe, wiping out huge numbers of humans in Europe. So in the early 1900s, a ship from China um, had rats, and the rats got off the boat and basically brought this disease. They were carrying the fleas that had salvatic plague and it just spread up through the ground squirrel population starting in California. And now it's up through prairie dogs into South Dakota and it kills prairie dogs and almost instantaneously kills black-footed ferrets. And so we have been able to develop a vaccine for black-footed ferrets that protects them from plague. It came from the U S army and the USGS, um, actually converted it and made it, um, Uh, applicable to black-footed ferrets, and now they actually have a bait vaccine that they're testing in the field for prairie dogs because, you know, you can save the ferret, you know, protect it from plague, but if you can't save their prey, then they're not going to thrive either. So, right, their food source. Right. Mm-hmm. So, um, so yeah, they're developing <laughs> yeah. all this. You know, our species just not did not evolve with it. So a lot of them succumb to it, like ferrets mm-hmm. and prairie dogs, and others could be potential carriers, okay. like coyotes. Wow, that's incredible. But I'm glad to hear that they're working towards vac-
1: vaccinations that will will help these guys, and then potentially their feed. And potentially their food source, too.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's pretty amazing. And One of the things I love about the FAIR program is how scientific it is and how many different people work together to solve these yeah, issues Yeah, it's just that incredible. And now,
1: what would you say to somebody who asks the question, which is not going to be me, clearly, <laughs> because I'm ai am a Black-footed fair, uh fan, but what would you say to somebody who questions spending all this money and time to help save the black-footed ferret?
0: They are probably just a small player when it comes to the prairie ecosystem. Mm-hmm. You know, they do only eat prairie dogs, but there are a lot of things that rely on the prairie dogs, you know, anything from invertebrates and reptiles and... Um, and the grasses, um, birds. too. Yeah, and the grasses and birds, you know, um, lots of things either eat them or use the burrows um, or, you know, help the grasses being maintained. But no one, you know, people really have this conflict with them because of the agriculture and cattle ranches and urban development. And so we need to save the Blackfoot affair in order to save the prairie ecosystem, which really means we're using it to save the prairie dog. Very good.
1: I I agree wholeheartedly. (laughs) But one of the things, too, um, we try to always focus on positives with the podcast and all the good things that are being done. But some of these stories, reading them day after day, it can often be disheartening. Or, will, with conservation, I know that there's always, of course, conservation and research and science, there's always three steps forward, one step back, sometimes two steps back, sometimes four steps back. But luckily, there's a lot of amazing people like yourself that are willing to keep trying to take those steps forwards to save species like the black footed ferret. So, my question is. What do you do to keep staying motivated uh, and the others around you in the, that specialize in conserving black-footed ferrets to stay motivated to keep fighting the good fight for the black-footed ferrets?
0: Yeah, you know, with the ferret program, it's, it's, it's a good story because, first of all, we screwed up. Basically, there was a poisoning campaign sponsored by the government to poison prairie dogs. You know, and it started with strychnine and they've, uh, the other poisons now – um, um, who, who knows what else it was wiping out? And you know, we we acknowledge mm-hmm. that, and we're trying to fix it. And we've been very successful nine thousand mm-hmm. black-footed ferrets. Right? We have produced that in thirty years. It's it's amazing. We've been very successful. And it's what's, incredible. As I mentioned, you know the science that goes behind the species. We learn so quickly. They have a very short generation time, meaning they're reproducing within their first year. And so we can change management, do different diets, different strategies, and see effects immediately. Other programs can't do that. There's a social structure maybe mm-hmm. that comes with sexual maturity, or takes so long to reach sexual maturity that they may not be able to breed until they're you know three, three or four years of age, um, or until they disperse away from their group. And so we can really use them as a model for other zoo and human-managed populations, to see what has worked and what has failed. You know, just like the boot camp training. What does it take to make them wild again, completely being able to survive in the wild? So all this stuff people can use from the Ferret program. Very cool. And so it, it just... You know, we do have a bit of a crisis. It seems like our jobs are always in crisis mode because we're always (laughs) trying to save something. And it gets overwhelming sometimes. But like I said, finding that zoo-born, zoo-preconditioned ferret in Mexico, one of the harshest climates, you know, um, environments at that time. Because uh, they were going through a huge drought for many years, you know, and just seeing like we can we can do it you know, and ferrets are a great example, particularly for endangered carnivores because they are pretty sensitive to you know this inbreeding depression. you know again, the ferrets come from seven founders, you know are we they're mm-hmm. very closely related. actually, when they breed, they're breeding with their half sib, so they pretty much okay. always share a parent. Um, so Mm -hmm. we could just learn and also test the theories of evolutionary biology. If you want to put it on your academic hat, this is a really cool species Mm -hmm. to figure out what's going to work. And with zoo programs, you know, we really can see, you know, it can be successful. We can do this and we, we are conservation entities when it comes to being a zoo.
1: Right. Wonderful. Which is. One of the reasons why not only, you know, I'm so proud to uh, have my roots with Lincoln Park Zoo. Uh, They do amazing conservation work. I've highlighted them a little bit on different podcasts. I try to hold back to not be biased. (laughs) But of course, they're one of the top in the country and they do really cool things. And zoos in general put a lot, a lot of money towards conservation efforts in the wild. And they should be applauded because they're doing really great things. And like you said, the black-footed ferret is just an example of many other um, efforts that are being put out there. And so one of my last questions is if you're a listener and you're not sure how you love the black footed ferret and you love their story and you want to learn more about them or just in general, you want to help their conservation efforts. What could an average person yeah, do so to help I think the black footed ferret?
0: Wildlife conservation can always start in your back door. You know, what can you do even if it's like properly throwing out your trash, recycling, you know, some of these things you can just really do. And it doesn't have to be necessarily donating money. You know, visiting a zoo and spending time at the zoo and learning and about mm-hmm. these different species is, is an easy way to help with wildlife conservation. But for ferrets, you know, we do have a Blackfooted Ferret Friends mm-hmm. Group. And you can find that on the, our website, which is www.blackfootedferret.org. Oh. And there's great information. It's a great resource there. And you know, there's opportunities to okay. support fer- um, ferrets financially if you want to. Um, there's many zoos around the country that um, have ferrets. Um, and so supporting those zoos is always a, a good way to support wildlife conservation and species like black-footed ferrets.
1: And so after this interview, we're all going to go check out blackfootedferret.org. And see what cool things are going on, and learn more about them. And/or you can listen if you haven't had the chance. You can listen to our podcast specifically on black-footed ferrets and find out more details about their behavior, reproduction, uh, and physiology. But I really want to thank you, Dr. Santemeyer, for your time today. And I learned a lot. I, of course, I know a lot about you in general, but. Uh, we're usually talking about different things, and I don't get a chance to just uh, pick your pick your brain about the Blackfooted Ferrets and listen to all the amazing work that you're doing. So, thank you so much today. You're by far my one of my favorite people in the world, and I just really appreciate your time and sharing your passion and dedication with the Blackfooted Ferrets with us today. Thank you so much.
0: Thank you for having me. You're
1: welcome.